Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Neil J. Thomas, MD, about the article, Pediatric Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, Consensus Recommendations from the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury Consensus Conference, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2015. Dr. Thomas is a professor of pediatrics and public health sciences at the Milton S. Hershey Medical Center at Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Thank you for being with us today, Neil. Thank you for having me. So, Neil, tell us what led to the development of this consensus conference on pediatric ARDS. Well, with the group that we have put together and been fairly successful, the uh, Polizzi group, the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators Group, we always felt that we really needed pediatric-specific definitions. About 10 years ago, a group got together and discussed sepsis definitions and came up with definitions that are still being used today. And we felt the same thing needed to occur for ARDS. Most people really felt that the consensus conference definitions from 1994 were a good start, but they were inadequate for pediatrics. And we had talked about doing this a few years ago, but then we received word that the Berlin group would be getting together and redefining ARDS. And we waited for their definitions to come out. Those definitions, in our opinion, were much better, but they still weren't pediatric specific. And a few of us felt very strongly that two points needed to be addressed. The first was that they still required a PAO2 to diagnose ARDS. And we all have seen less and less arterial lines being placed. And it's really a subjective decision to place an arterial line. So you could have two children right next to each other. One can have an arterial line, one won't. And so the child with the arterial line has ARDS and the other one doesn't. And that really didn't sit well with us and make a lot of sense. The other issue was that even though the Berlin criteria added minimum PEEP to their definitions, we felt that that was still pretty inadequate to describe the overall trend of ventilation. In pediatrics, we generally will use oxygenation index as preferred to PDF ratio. And so we felt that something based on what we do in practice and what incorporates both of those points I just talked about was important. Back in 2010, we developed and published the Oxygen Saturation Index, which is basically the OI using a a saturation instead of the PaO2. And that actually did catch on a bit and was involved in some clinical trials, including ones that we did on surfactant and others. But we still didn't have the true definitions. We liked the Berlin criteria of one term, getting rid of acute lung injury and just calling it ARDS. We liked the mild, moderate, severe categories. And we felt that we could get together and, and develop something based on that. So with Philippe Gervais from Montreal and Doug Wilson from Virginia, we got together and we said basically it was time to try to put a group together and see if we can come up with pediatric-specific definitions and also address some of the other topics that we thought were important in, in pediatric ARDS. How did you put the panel together and who was, who was on the panel and who were they representing? Well. Doug and Philippe and I, when we uh, we first met at a Polizzi meeting, actually in the afternoon of one of the meetings when we had a break, and basically just got our ideas on paper. We outlined the plan as far as what we thought we would be able to do. And then once we came up with what we thought were good sections or groups, then we went to the literature and found out who was publishing in that group, in that particular section. We had particular topics, and so we really tried to get people who would be viewed externally as experts in the field. 
We also tried to make sure that we had as diverse a group as possible. We tried for broad representation. Obviously, the most published people are senior people, but we tried to include junior people who were starting to publish in the field and had had some success. We didn't want this to be just a U.S. group, and so we tried to include as many investigators outside the United States as we could. And we also wanted to make sure that we had equal representation of gender and race and and everything else so that it was as broad a group as we could put together. And then once we had our sections, we sort of stumbled across a pediatric intensivist at Johns Hopkins named Mila Bambea, who actually has her PhD in library sciences, and she offered her services as well, which was fantastic. As we went through the methodology of reviewing the literature, she kept us honest, made sure everything we did was was extremely uniform, and, and really it, it, her expertise helped us a great deal. Sounds like she was a real find. <laughs> it, was, it was a stumble, but it was a good stumble. So what process did you use to develop the recommendations? The way that we developed them was was what was called a modified Delphi approach. And so we knew that there was very sparse literature in the field. Actually, most of the things that we used were published by the experts that we had put together. Going back to the experts, we invited a total of 27 people, and only two of them refused, and most of them were, or both of them were because they were actually moving from one job to another. So everyone agreed as soon as we mentioned it, so we felt like we had the right people. Knowing that we didn't have a lot of literature to base it on, and we knew we were going to have to use a lot of expert opinion, we used the modified Delphi approach. And we chose that approach with voting using the RAND UCLA method because we really wanted to give everyone equal representation and an equal vote. It really minimized the leader effect. We've all been in meetings where sometimes the loudest person carries the most weight, and we wanted to find a a methodology where that, that wasn't the case, and I think we were able to do it. So after Doug and Philippe and I uh, sent out the invitations at the following pleasing meeting six months later, we had our first meeting before that in uh, Chicago. And we sat down with everyone in the group who showed up. And again, I will state that everyone paid their own way. We really didn't have a lot of funding for this. And so people, either through their institution or their own personal money, were able to pay their way to get to these meetings that we had. And we also had some offers but refused to take any industry sponsorship because we wanted to make sure that we were free of any even perception of a conflict of interest because we did talk about specific treatments for pediatric ARDS. So after we met in Chicago, we, as we met in Chicago, we sat down and talked about each section in detail and what people thought were the important parts, what people thought we should make recommendations about, what kind of literature would we need to support it, what kind of wording would we need. So it was really making sure that the sections that Philippe and Doug and I had outlined were what everyone thought was was appropriate. And we did make some changes as far as where things fit and, and the naming of some of the sections. After that meeting, we had anywhere between two and four individuals in each of the sections, and that's when the homework began. Uh, They went back and they worked on the recommendations. They did an extensive literature search, again with Mila's help and guidance in a uniform manner, went through all of the literature. We tried to stick to pediatric literature. Where there wasn't pediatric literature, we went to either the neonatal literature or the adult literature, and that was, uh, unfortunately, in some of the groups, there wasn't a whole lot of information, so we had to rely on some data that was outside the pediatric world. 
And so between the first and the second meeting, the, the sections came up with their list of recommendations, and we had them write what we called a short text, which is basically just a list of the recommendations that the final wording you can see in the, in the publication. And then we also had them develop a long text, which is basically the justification for each of those recommendations in a review of their field. And as this paper goes to press, it's, it's uh, in press online now. As it goes to press in the journal, it's also going to have a supplement that will have 11 full manuscripts, which is basically the long text or the justifications. There'll be the nine sections that relate to the methodology behind the recommendations and how they were developed. We also have a, a strict methodology paper, which includes the library sciences portion of it. And then we also have a section on pathobiology, which sort of sets the stage for the whole thing. You've made reference several times to sections. I believe there are nine of them. Yes. Can you just tell us what those sections are? Sure. The first section was the definition, the incidence, and the epidemiology of pediatric ARDS. The second section is the pathophysiology and comorbidities. The third section is ventilatory support. The fourth section is pulmonary-specific ancillary therapy, things like nitric oxide and surfactant. The fifth section is non-pulmonary treatment, which includes sedation and glucose management and others. The sixth section is monitoring of patients with pediatric ARDS. The seventh section is non-invasive ventilation and non-invasive support. The eighth section is extracorporeal support. And then the ninth section is morbidity and long-term outcomes of children with pediatric ARDS. Wow, this is really quite a comprehensive effort, and I congratulate you and your group for putting this all together. Thank you. It was certainly, I've said, as we presented this, I have a slide of cat herding, and it really was a lot like, <laughs> like herding cats. And it was a lot of work, but it was more fun than it was work, so I guess that's a good thing. And given the lack of data about a lot of these things, it's amazing that you managed to get as much agreement as you did. And you have a large number of recommendations in this paper. The vast majority, you have strong agreement. So tell us a little bit about how you define strong agreement versus weaker agreement, and how did you get to that? Well, after the groups did their work after the first meeting in Chicago, our second meeting was in Montreal, and, and the group as a whole felt that we were going to need two days because that was really the hard work. So we basically locked ourselves in a room in a hotel for two days and talked about each of the recommendations. We changed the wording when people didn't think the wording was, was right. We talked about maybe things being too strong of a recommendation because there wasn't much literature to support it. We tried to word things so that we had agreement more than disagreement. So we added or removed not and, and won't and things like that and tried mm -hmm. to make it so that there was strong agreement. After the second meeting, which again was, was a, a lot of work and, and a lot of, I guess I can say, heated discussions uh, about what should actually be said and what the wording should be, we really did nitpick on, on all the wording. We went back, and based on the wording of the recommendations, we did a few rounds of voting using the RAND-UCLA RAND method. And basically, the RAND-UCLA method allows people to vote either on a scale from one to nine, and one would be complete disagreement, and nine would be complete agreement, and people can vote anywhere on that scale. Again, anyone who had a personal conflict of interest with any of the topics would not vote on that topic. And once we had our rating, the RAND-UCLA method allows you to remove the lowest value and the highest value, and then you come up with a median. And if the median will either fall between 1, 2, and 3, which is disagreement, 4, 5, and 6, which is equipoise, or 7, 8, and 9, which is agreement. 
And again, we changed the wording around as much as we could to try to get agreement and not disagreement. Mm -hmm. If the range stayed inside the agreement category, then it was strong agreement. So if the range was between seven and nine, that was strong agreement. If the range crossed below seven and went into the four, five, six, or even the, the three, four after removing the lowest value, then that was weak agreement. And some of the weak agreement, we added the percentages of, of people who agreed to try to define how strong or how weak an agreement was. Can you give us a flavor for some of the major recommendations and what's different from the adult world? Well, I think the main thing that I'm hoping that we we get out of this is that we do have definitions that we have agreed upon. Whether they're right, whether they're wrong, time will tell. But at least they're out there and they're standard and people can start looking at them. As far as the, the definitions, the one thing we did that's different from both the uh, consensus criteria and the Berlin definitions is that we removed the bilateral chest x-ray findings. And this was a pretty heated agreement when we talked about whether we should require bilateral infiltrates on chest x-ray. And we spent a lot of time reviewing that literature in the Montreal meeting, and it was pretty clear that there's really nothing that supports in pediatrics bilateral uh, infiltrates correlating with outcome. And the way that people read x-rays really wasn't very consistent as well. And so we just recommended that only a new infiltrate that's consistent with a pulmonary parenchymal disease process is required not unilateral or bilateral. The other thing we did was that we uh, used oxygenation index as our main measure of a definition as opposed to PDF ratio. And we did that for the reasons that I talked about previously, that we have a lot of children in our ICUs that if someone would obtain an arterial blood gas, they would have ARDS. But because no one thinks that it's necessary because of pulse oximetry and, and, and tidal carbon dioxide monitoring, that they don't reach that diagnosis. And we felt that to understand the true epidemiology of that disease, we needed to include some measure of ventilation. And also, if they don't have an arterial line, then we are allowed, uh, allowed to use the oxygenation saturation index, which is a non-invasive measure. The adults have done a similar thing with the SAT to FiO2 ratio, and, and we did look at that as well. We felt that OSI was uh, a little bit more predictive and consistent with oxygenation index as opposed to going to SAT to FiO2 ratio. The other thing we did, which I thought was a good thing, I'm not sure where it's going to play out, but I think at least it gets the conversation started, is that we wanted to at least define that children who have chronic cardiorespiratory disease can have pediatric ARDS. So there's children that we all care for that are on a home ventilator or on a chronic ventilator. They can get a new infiltrate and they can have oxygenation changers, but yet they probably, using the Berlin criteria or the consensus criteria, have ARDS at baseline based on the amount of oxygen in the round and what their x-ray looks like. So we at least while they cannot be divided into mild, moderate, and severe, we at least recommended that they be counted as having ARDS if they meet the criteria that we talked about. The same thing with children with congenital heart disease. Those children are desaturated constantly because of their, their cardiac physiology, and we felt that they also can have ARDS if they had an acute insult and a chest x-ray supporting a new parenchymal disease. Again, not being broken down into mild, moderate, and severe, but having ARDS, and we felt that that was important. The paper has 
we tried to make as clear as possible two tables that are patients who have pediatric ARDS, and we broke it down into non-invasive mechanical ventilation and invasive mechanical ventilation. And then we also thought that it was important, again, for the epidemiology study to define patients who are at risk for pediatric ARDS. So they don't have it, but these are patients that may develop it. And I think getting a true flavor of the natural history of, of, of children in our ICU, that this at-risk group is important. And that, that's a, a table in the publication as well. I will say that there was as much discussion on what to call it as the definitions. We were torn between calling it some form of ARDS or some form of acute lung injury. And actually, we voted on this maybe four times before we finally came up with our term, which is pediatric ARDS, P-A-R-D-S, which hopefully will be, will be used moving forward. The other things that were most controversial, I think, were related to tidal volume and plateau pressure. And again, this was a heated discussion as far as what the appropriate tidal volume should be. As everyone knows, low tidal volume ventilation has seemed to be protective in adult ARDS, but yet when you look at the pediatric literature, there really isn't doesn't seem to be that same signal. And so there was a lot of a lot of discussion back and forth about what our recommendations for tidal volume should be. We decided on physiologic tidal volumes, which is five to eight mLs per kilo of predicted body weight, as tidal volumes that should be used for patients with pediatric ARDS, and also to limit the inspiratory plateau pressure to 28 centimeters of water, knowing that some children will require up to 32 uh, centimeters of water, especially if they have increased chest wall elastins. And these were weak agreement because some people thought the tidal volume should be set at three to six, and some people thought that the tidal volume should be set at eight to 10, because we really don't have good pediatric literature. And there is some hints that maybe tidal volume, higher tidal volumes are associated with improved outcome. And so we, we reviewed that literature very closely. We also, everyone in the room agreed that pediatric intensivists don't use PEEP like adult intensivists do. And we recommended that moderately Elevated levels of PEEP, which we called 10 to 15, may be used, may be required, and PEEP greater than 15 may be needed for the uh, children in the severe pediatric ARDS group. And the one thing we had strong agreement on, which I hope translates into clinical practice, is the use of cuffed endotracheal tubes in these patients, because I think we've all had to change tubes that were uncuffed when you get to a, mm -hmm. a certain level of lung disease. Mm -hmm. You have made a lot of practical recommendations in this document, as well as made definitions and statements based on essentially no data with the recommendation that we need research in the area. Again, I think you've done a very comprehensive job. Do you think this document can be used as a sort of guideline for us to manage kids with ARDS? I'm not sure it's at the point that it can be used as a document. I think it, it gives someone, especially an inexperienced person or someone who is not as familiar with the literature, an idea of what experts around the world think about certain things. And at this point, it's as good as we have. We really hope that this is a working document, and we would hope that these recommendations require change over time. That means that someone has looked at this and said, that's not right, we need to research it and gather more data related to the things that we talked about. We, we hope that we've, we've built the floor, um, and we don't see it as, as more than that. But if only the, the 28 people that were part of the conference are using these, these definitions and recommendations, it's, it's, it's not going to advance as fast as we would like. And so we hope that people around the world will use this and begin studying pediatric ARDS in their, in their own units and figure out if some of these things really work. Some of the things that 
it's amazing the lack of data, things that we do all the time like suctioning and, and chest PT. There's really nothing out there that we could we could base any recommendations on except to say that there's insufficient data that recommends it. But yet it's something that happens, I would imagine, around the world. And there's just a, a we, we hope that it shines light on what we don't know. And hopefully it, it'll spur people on to, to study this a little further and, and to make advances because we are even though we treat this daily, we're behind on understanding how things that we do impact outcome. But I think it was very important that our final section was long-term outcomes, and that was something that, that personally I thought was very important, and as a group we thought was very important, because everyone agrees that once children leave the ICU, we really don't have a good idea of what happens to them. Do they have any form of chronic lung disease? Do they have any form of, of neurologic disease? Now that survival is the rule rather than the exception for some of these children with severe lung disease, we, we need to know are things that we do to help them make it through the intensive care unit have an impact long-term? And, and at this point, we really have no idea. That was a very important section that, again, we made recommendations, but not a whole lot of, of data out there that we could use it on. In this paper, you have everything listed as a strong agreement with a small number of areas of weaker agreement. In the full document, in the supplement, do you include the strength of the literature on each point? We talked long and hard about whether we did the, the grade method of, of literature, and we decided not to. And so we will have the recommendations in each of the supplements, so they will be standalone, and you won't require the main paper to understand things. Following each recommendation is a review of the literature, and it will state there, there's, there's hundreds of references in each, in oh, each supplement, sure. and it'll show the literature that we reviewed to come up with the recommendation or that there was no literature, and so the recommendation really is expert opinion. I, I suspect that most of them are expert opinion. <laughs> it, it was unfortunate that, that the things that we thought we knew, even with the people in the room who study this and treat this daily was really not based in the literature. It was, it was eye-opening when we started doing the, the literature review. In the methodology manuscript in this supplement, there will also be an online supplement, which will be all of the methodology about how, this liter how the literature was chosen, what terms uh -huh. were used, anything that if anybody wanted to duplicate it, it would all be available for them. Have you changed anything you do as a result of going through all this process? Not at this point. Again, I think the one thing I did was, was we started working to really put together a strong grant application to do a true epidemiology study. I think we need to, whether you call it a, a pragmatic trial or a comparative effectiveness trial, we need to identify these children when they hit the, the door of the ICU, follow exactly what we do. So explicit methodology related to things like tidal volume and, and peak mm -hmm. pressure and plateau pressure and follow them along to see what the natural course is and also follow them to, uh, uh, to longer term outcomes. And so we've had a lot of discussion. The thing it did was it brought us together as a group with people that we haven't collaborated with before. And I think that was the main thing. I feel like now I have 27 friends around the world who I can call and say, hey, this is what we need to do, and we've already started some of that collaboration as well. Well, that is a huge step in laying the groundwork to move this field forward. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Well, the one thing I'd like to say is I'd really like to thank everyone that was involved. I mean, again, these people spent their own money and came on their own time to put something together, which I hope we're going to be able to be proud of, and I hope it's, it's used in the sense that we'd like it to. We also had 
if you look at the paper, we've had multiple funding sources. We joked at the last meeting that I think we are the first people to use crowdfunding because we moved, <laughs> we pulled money from certain places to pay for the meeting room, to pay for some food during the day. Obviously, we didn't have enough money to pay for, for travel, but we really pulled from, from many institutions and people chipped in with whatever they could. And we wouldn't have been able to do that, including publish the supplement without that support. It speaks well to the commitment of everyone involved to the field and to the children we care for. Uh, I agree. We we struggled a little bit about who to choose, and uh, and I think there's not a person that was in the room that I that any either Philippe or Doug or I have said maybe they shouldn't have been part of it. I think we were happy that they're all there, and and unfortunately we didn't want to over-invite because we felt that anything more than between 20 and 30 people would be unmanageable as, as far mm-hmm. as trying to get things done. It really was, a, a lot of it was, was steering and making sure we stayed on task. And again, with the expertise of Philippe and method, with methodology and Doug and his meeting leadership, we were able to, to stay on task. I think you did a great job. I remember when you started this a couple of years ago, and I am truly impressed with the work that you've done and the contribution you all have made. And I'd like to express my appreciation as well as I'm sure that of all of the pediatric intensivists around the world. Well, that's good to hear. Again, this was a, this was a labor of love, and, and time will tell if doing this is able to move the field forward to the point that where we all think we need to be. Well, thank you for, for joining me today, Neil. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We have been talking with Dr. Neil Thomas from Hershey, Pennsylvania, about the article, Pediatric Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, Consensus Recommendations from the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury Consensus Conference, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2015. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion, or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash Project Dispatch. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email icriticalcare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.